So I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about my problem with dating websites. I mean, let's back up first. I am married. I do not use dating websites. My problem is the best kind of problem to have, which is a philosophical one that has no bearing on my life whatsoever. To understand this problem that I have, though, you'll have to know a little bit about how dating websites work. Okay, you ready for this? On a dating website, you fill out your profile and answer questions about yourself, like this endless survey all about you. What you like, what you don't like, what you believe, what you do for fun, they go on and on and on. And the program compares your answers with another person's answers and gives you a compatibility result, the percentage of answers that you agree on with another person. The higher, the better, right? Then you match in the upper 90th percentile. Your future bliss is clearly sealed. You see the problem, maybe. This assumes that agreement equals compatibility. And when I look, actually, at the enduring relationships I most admire and want to emulate in my life, I cannot say that the two people in it are carbon copies of one another. When I counsel premarital couples, it seems, I mean, and this is overgeneralizing here, that there's usually one who is more introverted and one who's more extroverted, you know, someone who likes cooking and someone who likes art. They have different careers because they have different interests that took them in interesting and different directions. It's not like this person is looking in a mirror and admiring what they see. It's more like, like two puzzle pieces fitting together, two entirely different shapes that come together and form this cohesive partnership. Those are the sorts of things that I notice and admire. I think this impulse to love something other than yourself is what is behind everything that makes life worth living. In books and movies, we enter stories, another person's story, and you know we have no control about where that other story is going. We're just there to watch it unfold. We look at the night sky and are jolted with this sort of awe and fear at its impartiality to us. It's just doing its thing. We walk into a church and we practice lifting up our hearts. I think this, this impulse to love something other than yourself, is also what the book of Job is about. A lot of, think, a lot of folks think that Job is about the problem of suffering. You know his story. It starts with God in the heavenly realms, who's met by an adversary, the prosecuting attorney of the heavens, who has been busy spreading his accusations of guilt to and fro all over the earth, finding no one innocent. God says, what about Job? Now there is a wise and righteous man. The Satan says, it's only because his life is so good that he's a righteous man. Take away all that control, all the good things, all that he loves, and Job will become as guilty as the rest of them. 
And so it happens. Job loses every good thing. His livestock, his servants, his land, his riches, his children. When Job refuses to curse God after all that, the accuser takes it up another notch. And he infects Job's skin with sores, even his body now a betrayal to him. Job is such a wretched, God-forsaken sight that when his three friends show up to comfort him, they weep and they tear their clothes and they sit in total silence for seven days and seven nights with him. Job is the one who breaks the silence by cursing, not God, but the day that he was born. His friends respond at that point and begin to try to explain to Job why he is suffering. Like all arguments to explain suffering, if you've read them, you will know they are uniformly awful all the way through. The friends try to convince Job of his sinfulness. They're trying to answer that age-old question. If we can know the ways of God, and we know that God is all-powerful, then why do good people suffer? The friends believe that they have the answer. Job must be secretly, down deep, a sinful man. If he confesses this, then God will hear and relent of this punishment. It's an awful argument, but maybe you've heard it before in different ways. You know, the reasons why people are poor or unsuccessful or weak through some personal fault. Maybe you've wondered it yourself when you've looked at your own suffering and grasped for a reason that you could possibly deserve this. Job rejects this. In almost a comical way, even, it would sound conceited coming from ordinary folks like us. But Job isn't us. He maintains his perfect innocence. He is the embodiment of the best of all good men. And this whole story turns on the necessity of him being pretty much perfect. A thoroughly righteous man meets disaster. No argument will make the suffering palatable for him. In today's reading, Job begins to talk to God, demanding an audience. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Job rejects the wisdom of his friends. He is no longer interested in arguments about God, about his sinfulness, about whether this was all a part of God's plan, or whether God just needed some more angels up in heaven, or other such nonsense that you will hear from people who want to explain the ways of God. Job wants to talk to God, to argue his case, to be vindicated. And it happens. God finally does answer Job. If you can call what happens an answer, God responds in poetry, an epic paean about bringing all things into being and asking Job, you know, 
Where were you for all that? When the foundations of the heavens and the earth were put in place, were you there? The answers are all questions and fire, and the general realization that there is a whole lot in the realm of knowledge that is just way above our pay grade, even that of a wise and righteous man like Job. Job never learns that his character was debated by God and the Satan. Even when his fortunes are restored doubly at the end of the story, when Job is given twice the wealth and the livestock and the children, he never hears why his life was destroyed in the first place. I think this is on purpose. The book of Job does not try to answer the question of suffering. It does ask us to consider the ways we might try to make God just like we are. God does not reject Job, who tries to speak to God. God rejects the friends who speak only of their ideas about God. If you can find some solace in this story of Job, I think it must be something like the kind of solace that you get when you fall in love with someone who is entirely not you. The friends of Job keep holding up mirrors and looking in it and declaring the image to be God. But Job throws the mirrors to the ground and shatters them. He will not be satisfied with his own reflection. In opening himself to the unanswerable, Job finds an uncontrollable, untamable reality beyond his own. What Job finds, ultimately, is the ability to love.